Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family. My name is Neil Holland, a former captain with Eastern Airlines, and along with Harry Lindquist, a former pilot scheduler with Eastern, and his wife, Linda Lindquist, we produce a weekly program called Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern Airlines, as told by the people of Eastern and friends known as the Eastern family. Our stories of Eastern include those from all departments of this great legacy airline. We find these stories from publications like Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, The Wings of Man, a book compiled by Mr. Roland Moore and Vito Borelli, The Newswing, a newsletter of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport from 1927 to 1933, and other publications as we find them, and stories from you, the members and friends of the Eastern family. It all started flying the mail from New York to Atlanta, Jacksonville, Miami, with the many stops along the way in open cockpit mail planes. Next came the carrying of passengers along the same route system along the east coast of America. From the first hostesses in the fabric Curtis aircraft to the stewards and stewardesses of the great silver fleet to the flight attendants in the jet age, Eastern would lead the way with many firsts in the airline industry. It did not start out as Eastern Airlines but took on many changes along the way. In early 1929, Clement Keyes, a former financial editor of the Wall Street Journal, decided to purchase a small Philadelphia-based airline known as Pitcairn Aviation Incorporated. It had been formed September 15, 1927. Keyes then sold Pitcairn to North American Aviation, then a holding company for a number of airline and aircraft companies in in which he was one of the key shareholders. Early in 1930, Pitcairn's name was changed to Eastern Air Transport Incorporated, and soon after, the airline expanded its its routes to include Atlanta, Miami, Boston, and Richmond, Virginia. Its fleet at the time consisted of three Ford and two Falker FX aircraft, followed by Curtis Condors and Kingbirds, 
World War I ace Eddie Rickenbacker served as general manager of Eastern. There is so much to tell about the history of Eastern that we decided to let the people of Eastern tell the story. So let's continue on with tonight's broadcast of memories of a great airline, Eastern Airlines, as told by its people. This is a story from The Wings of Many. It's by Alexa Conway called Pilots at the Pool. I remember a summer layover in Houston. In summer, you could count on the flight attendants heading down to the pool right away. Sometimes the pilots came along, sometimes not. However, Houston was a different case. The word had quickly spread among the pilots that the Scandinavian Airlines laid over at the same hotel. The pilots were usually down there before the flight attendants on our crew. The reason was soon clear. The Scandinavian women would doff their bathing suit tops immediately to get a better tan. The flight attendants didn't pay any attention. The pilots were there, though, cameras in hand, acting like little kids. It was funny. The boys just do not always grow up. After several weeks of this, we all hit the pool, and here they came. The interest and excitement was palpable. However, this time there was a family at the pool, kids splashing in the waiting area. The father was not happy. He stormed into the hotel and lodged a complaint. In a few minutes, a fresh-faced young boy came out who was maybe 19. He would have preferred to have been anywhere but there. He approached the women who ignored him. He finally explained haltingly that he could not allow them to sunbathe naked. Well, they were not naked and stood up to point that out. He died right there, but somehow kept standing. He didn't know where to look. The pilots were almost besides themselves with glee, cameras flashing away. Guts in hand, the poor boy stammered that the women would have to put their tops back on. They were very annoyed and showed it. They sighed, they glared, but they began putting their tops back on. The young employee started back to the lobby, ducking soft drink cans, food taunts, and many boos. The pilots were showing their dismay. They threw everything they could find at that poor kid. It was pretty funny. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. We continue with part two of the Dick Merrill story. A year afterward, Merrill made aviation history again when he and Jack Lampy a 27-year-old EAL co-pilot made the first commercial heavier-than-air transatlantic flights. The pair helped publisher William Randolph Hearst scoop competitors by flying photos of King George VI's coronation to the USA. Merrill flew a twin-engine Lockheed Electra for the challenge. A pre-departure press conference at Floyd Bennett Field on May 6, 1937 was interrupted by news of the Hindenburg disaster at Lake Hearst, New Jersey. 
Hearst promptly asked Merrill to take on the additional challenge of rushing film of that fiery crash to his editors in London. The Electra, named Daily Express, took off with an escort of ten other aircraft, one carrying Rickenbacker, but soon was flying alone into yet another North Atlantic storm. Undaunted, the well-teamed pilots made good progress, abetted by the Lockheed's new Sperry autopilot. Worth its weight in gold, said Merrill. The tight-fisted Rickenbacker refused to install this new aid on his airliners, saying his pilot, he paid his pilots to hand-fly their airplanes. Eastern pilots joked that their new boss, that their boss saw no need for new equipment not standard with a World War II SPAD fighter. Airborne radio was still rudimentary, and static prevented the pilots from contacting London's Croydon Airport. They found and landed at Royal Air Force North Weald, northeast of the city, received directions, and took off heading south for Croydon and another hero's welcome. A messenger pushed through the crowd to accept the Hindenburg photos from Merrill, then raced away to the Hearst newspaper offices. On May 13th, the pilots departed on a return trip, completing an adventure that would earn them personal congratulations from Franklin D. Roosevelt. The president would award Merrill the Harmon Trophy soon afterward. Unfortunately, Merrill's trust in Wall Street wheeler dealer Ben Selim Short Smith, who had helped underwrite the flight, proved naive. Smith, accused by some congressmen of helping to trigger the 1929 market crash, had promised to reward Dick for the successful Atlantic crossings and follow-up publicity tour by giving him the Lockheed. Instead, Smith sold the aircraft to the Soviet government and disappeared. Marilyn Lambie received only modest checks for starring in the quickie film called Atlantic Flight. Merrill took time out from his record-breaking flying to wed blonde actress Martha Virginia Toby Wing in 1938, a match announced first by broadcaster Walter Renschel, another of Dick's celebrity friends. The marriage left associates rolling their eyes. Toby, who had appeared in several forgettable movies, had been engaged to several Hollywood types, although she was only 22, half the captain's age. Bob Hope, on meeting the new Mrs. Merrill at a party, said he was pleased to see her, and I'm glad to see you brought your father along. According to Toby, her husband was not amused. Despite their differences, the pair would surprise everyone by staying married for life. Together, they would enjoy their celebrity status, socializing at both ends of Dick's favored New York-Miami route. But they had their share of tragedies as well. The couple's first child died in infancy, and their oldest son was murdered. Although Toby became a steady and influence, active in church work, Dick's gambling remained a problem for years. The couple moved to a bayfront home in Miami Beach with the encouragement of Eddie Rickenbacker, who believed a big mortgage would restrict his costly habit. As E.L.'s longtime president explained in his 1967 autobiography, Rickenbacker, Dick had to forego the ponies to pay for the house. Merrill's gambling excesses didn't affect his piloting skill or his good fortune. Rickenbacker once described him as the luckiest damn pilot flying for Eastern. His evidence included a December 1936 accident in which Merrill crashed an isolating DC-2 at night in bad weather near Port Jervis, New Jersey. Unable to fix his position because of radio static, Merrill let down looking for a sucker hole in the clouds but collided with a peak in the Pocono Mountains. 
He managed to stall the plane between trees to cushion the impact, and none of his passengers was injured, although Dick broke his ankle and jaw and lost some teeth. Rickenbacker's trust was reinforced on February 7, 1948, when Merrill was flying as check captain to board a constellation scheduled from Boston and LaGuardia to West Palm Beach to Miami. En route, over water, a runaway prop sliced into the cabin, killing a flight purser and severing control cables, engine controls, and electrical wires. Merrill and the crew kept the crippled airplane aloft and they could land at Bunnell, a small airfoil in Florida. Merrill's fans included Dwight D. Eisenhower, who asked that Dick pilot his presidential campaign charter leading up the November 1952 election. Merrill took special pride in being able to ease Mamie Eisenhower's fear of flying as he had calmed so many others, including Toby, whose father had died in an air crash. After Ike won, he invited Merrill to attend inauguration dinner to express his thanks. Following the 1970 death of Sidney Shannon Sr., a retired EL executive who had hosted Dick's wedding to Toby in 1938, Merrill agreed to serve as curator of the Aviation Museum Sidney Shannon Jr. founded in Fredericksburg, Virginia. The museum's collection, including a Pitcairn Millwing, the world's sole remaining Vultee V1, named Lady Peace II, the original Lady Peace ended up in Spain, was scrapped in 1953, and Merrill's memorabilia is now part of the Virginia Aviation Museum in Richmond. But Merrill hadn't finished making history. At the age of 78, still logging flight hours with a first-class FAA medical certificate, he welcomed a chance to fly Concorde with an EAL evaluation team. In 1972, he helped deliver the airline's first TriStar from California to Miami in record time. With the hurricane-like tailwind, the jet liner agrees achieved 710 mile-per-hour ground speed. By 1981, though, Merrill was telling biographer and former Martin test pilot Jack King, my runway is running out. He died in October the following year at the age of 88 in Lake Elsinore, California, with Toby beside him. She would live until March 2001, still sharing her pride in Dick's aviation legacy. continue with part two of Eastern's love affair with Lockheed. Eastern's Doug Davis, who won the Thompson Trophy in 1928, was the only pilot to die in one of the racers. After the death of both partners in successive flying accidents, Waddell Williams was purchased and liquidated in 1936 by Eastern Air Transport. Intercaptains Doug Wortham 
Leo Cloney, Mel Sater, and Hank Freeze came on the scene as Eastern pilots. Hank Freeze later became a dispatcher with Eastern Airlines. Irv Fergot came to work for Eastern Air Transport in 1932. He's based in Houston and worked the Vegas during the brief time they operated. The acquisition of Waddell Williams by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker gave Eastern Airlines its first penetration into Texas in the beginning of the love affair of its pilots with Lockheed. Lockheed engineers revolutionized the aviation industry with their next leap forward in aircraft design. The Lockheed 10 was an airplane whose best power setting also produced its most economical cruise speed. At nearly full speed, the airplane had its longest range. Other aircraft of the period required a low power setting to extend their range. Lockheed achieved this remarkable characteristic by the unique design of the wing. None of the biplanes in the military could match the Lockheed 10 for speed. For this reason, among others, Amelia Earhart chose it for her second for her around-the-world attempt. Many of us believe she was on a mission for the government to view the Japanese military installations on Saipan prior to our entry into World War II. The Lockheed 10 was one of the airplanes utilized by Eastern Airlines beginning in 1935 when Eastern began the Atlanta-Chicago mail contract. Warren Jameson, hired around that time, recalls when he flew it for Eastern, the worst weather existed that he can remember. The airplane served him well with his fine flight characteristics. It was easy to make a three-point landing with the tail down. It didn't flop over on the main wheels like the later twin engine. Private owners had many of the Lockheed 10 airplanes. The Vanderbilts owned the one Eastern's Dick Merrill and Jack Lambie used to make their, used to make their precedent-setting round-trip transatlantic flight in 1937. After World War II, child movie star Margaret O'Brien owned one, now restored, and located at the municipal airport in Denton, Texas. The next giant step in aviation came with the advent of the Lockheed Constellation, which brought with it high-altitude, pressurized flight, and supercharged engines. Not only did it utilize two-stage supercharges, it incorporated the power recovery turbine, which consisted of a small fan driven by exhaust gases. It is in most new cars now under the name of a turbo power. John Halliburton, Vice President of Flight Operations, sent a group of Eastern pilots to the Lockheed Constellation School at the factory in Burbank. The training included the flight engineer's course and lasted six weeks. They had to learn every circuit breaker in the electrical system. Captain Rickenbacker wanted them to be sure they knew the airplane because they had been, there had been a recent training accident attributed to smoke in the air cockpit. Someone had opened the cockpit window and smoke came in from the cabin. A new method was to open an overwing cabin window first and then open a cockpit window on the opposite side. This blew the smoke out of the airplane, leaving the cockpit clear. Believing in the Peter Principle, which says that if something can go wrong at will, our pilots pressed to have a cross-feed valve installed in the hydraulic system so that hydraulic pressure would be available if numbers 3 and 4 engines were lost. These pumps supplied the system for raising and lowering the landing gear. The thought was that a broken line would be more likely to occur than the loss of these two engines. We learned later we learned better when a super constellation was able to make it from Seattle into McCord because the gear could not be raised. Eastern enjoyed great success with its Lockheed constellations. 
They were in immediate favor of pilots such as John Warren Jameson and Paul Charles. Ted Maxwell recalls Captain Eddie's admonition when pilots referred to it as the Connie. He said it was like calling your wife an old bag. Passengers poured into the Miami Beach luxury hotels, flown from New York on the nonstop Constellation night coaches with their economical fares. It was not much different from riding the train to Atlantic City. The next acquisition for Eastern was the Lockheed prop jet Electra that took us to higher altitudes and faster flight. For many, this became a favorite because of its positive control and superb performance. It brought forth a completely new nomenclature. Throttles became power levers because of the many functions they performed. Control was so positive, one had to be careful not to over-control the aircraft. The engines provided more power than we had ever seen. Flights were smoother at the higher altitudes. We began to develop a more delicate touch. It took a long time for the engines to spin down, so procedures began to keep from having to wait to open the door and deplane. We learned to pump the air conditioner down so when the compressor came back on, it would not slug. Next came advanced pressurization and ground cooling. It was a perfect transition airplane for things to come. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. This is part two of an article written in the 1996 magazine for the Retired Eastern Pilots Association Repartee. In it, Captain Bill Malone wrote a story titled Compass and the Clock. This is part two of that story. In his book, Fate is a Hunter, Ernest Gann regards life as a war, an undeclared war against the fate that hunts men down. There are many expressions which depict the fateful situation in which the aviator sometimes finds himself when there is no foreseeable way out. It could be said that one would have his back to the wall, be deep in the well, between a rock and a hard place, up the creek without a paddle, or up against it. To the aviator, he would be left with nothing but the compass and the clock. How many of us have been down to the compass and the clock? Certainly Captain Glenn King, or Olin King, I should say, and his co-pilot, R.A. Kelly, found themselves in that situation in 1945 as they attempted a landing in bad weather at Florence, South Carolina, following some undisclosed emergency aloft. Fate dealt them a losing hand. Jimmy Goodwin recalls that the DC-3 crashed in a dense swamp, swamp about eight miles northwest of Florence. The fact that all bodies in the passenger cabin were crowded into the front, along with other evidence, indicated that a fire in the cabin may have caused the emergency. Fate was more benevolent earlier with Johnny Keitel 
a classmate of Charles Lindbergh at Brookfields, as he was descending on instruments in the Pitcairn mail wing. He crashed on Stone Mountain near Atlanta. Johnny climbed out of the wreckage, collected his small his mail sack, walked down the mountain, and hitched a ride to the Atlanta airport where he obtained another plane and continued the flight. Johnny Keitel loved stunt flying and frequently put on a show just before landing with the mail. Fate claimed his life as he was demonstrating the snap roll in the little GB aircraft. The wing came off, and the airplane snap rolled continuously until it struck the ground. Fate was unkind to Bill Coney and his co-pilot, Kenneth Willingham, as they were flying their DC-4 from New York to Miami in 1947. Jimmy Goodwin also remembers the details of their ill-fated flight. Near Fort, uh, Port Deposit, Maryland, a DC-3 with three crew members of a Civil Aeronautics Administration accident investigating team were overtake, overtaken by the faster DC-4. The weather was clear with unlimited visibility. Shortly after the DC-4 had passed those uh, th- those in the CAA DC-3 observed the DC-4 go from level flight into a vertical dive. In the ensuing crash, 53 people lost their lives. It was the worst accident in U.S. aviation history at the time. Some speculated that the gust lock may have been actuated in flight, perhaps as a result of a prank, locking the controls causing the aircraft to enter a climb. This would have prompted the pilot flying to roll the elevator trim tab forward, causing the aircraft to nose over into a dive when the gust lock was disengaged. Even had this occurred, it would seem that two pilots could have made a recovery. A more plausible explanation is contained in Ernest Gann's book, Fate is a Hunter, as he describes his experience in the DC-4 involving a phenomenon known as unporting. Unporting is the balance destruction of the elevators by aerodynamic force. If enough separation between the fixed and the balanced portion of the elevators occurs, the aircraft will enter vertical dive or even go beyond the vertical, and no two pilots would be strong enough to overcome the force. Gann had been on a DC-4 flight in which he experienced strange vibrations for which he and his crew were unable to explain. They did not reduce speed because of a previous experience of engine failure on all four engines when they throttled back. So they continued on to their destination with the power remaining at cruise. For the next leg of the flight, they took an amount of fuel that brought their gross weight, gross takeoff weight, up to the same weight as the previous flight in which they had more passengers and flew at the same speed. The combination of weight and speed prevented the phenomenon of unporting from taking place. For had Gann not maintained the speed and taken the extra fuel, the aircraft would likely have entered a vertical dive. The whole elevator being loose 
had caused the vibration. One of the hinge bolts securing the elevator was missing. Fate had dealt Gan a kinder hand than it had dealt Bill Cooney and Kenneth Willingham. Fate was considered, uh, was considered in 1934 when Captain Al Laney and co-pilot Francis Black encountered a fire in their DC-2, thought to be in the rear baggage compartment. Wisely, Al Laney selected a cotton patch and landed immediately with no casualties. Francis Black got off a hurried emergency message saying, We are landing. Our tail is burning off. The radio operator on the ground thought he had said, We are landing to take the mail off. In 1946, the de-icing equipment of the DC-3 was totally inadequate to handle the icing conditions that occurred along the Gulf Coast that winter and especially between Beaumont and Houston. Fate was charitable to Captain Shelley Charles and your, ele- your editor as Shelley gave the finest performance of his flying career. He was called upon to reach for all his previous experience in both airplanes and sailplanes to sustain flight with the incredible load of ice that had accumulated all over the aircraft. Climbing in search of the warmer air and the temperature inversion only produced additional ice to an already floundering ship. Added to the dilemma were the freezing controls. Shelley was able to free them by continually moving the uh, rudders and elevators and ailerons. The landing in Houston was a masterpiece of flying skill. As our ice-laden DC-3 wallowed up to the end of the runway, all was not without a price. When we arrived back in Atlanta, Shelley checked into the hospital with a hernia. It was as though he had carried the airplane to Houston on his back. You could say that fate was charitable in the case of Archie Comer, who was flying in a Lockheed Electra over Tennessee in bad weather when the stewardess came forward to tell him that the floor back in the passenger cabin was caving in and felt hot to the touch. The critical buses began to transfer automatically back and forth as indicated on the overhead electrical panel in the cockpit. Then, suddenly, all electrical power was lost. This presented a dilemma of enormous proportion as most everything on the electra was operated by electricity. There was no doubt in the fact that Archie Comer was left with nothing but the compass and the clock. Those of us who are familiar with the event have no doubt in our minds but that they gave that he gave one of the finest demonstrations of flying skill known at the time as he completed an approach and safe landing at Nashville. It was later discovered that a strap had come loose from a main electrical bus and fallen across the main bus creating an arcing that shorted out the entire electrical system. But then, of course, Archie Comer would have landed safely if it could possibly have been done. He is the one who soloed Lindbergh. George Boast won his war against fate 
when he took off from LaGuardia Field in the Martin 404. Unknown to him and the pilots on the DC-4 that took off just ahead of him, a severe icing condition had settled over the area. All four engines on the DC-4 suddenly iced up and the airplane crashed on Rikers Island, just north of the airport. George Bost was already airborne before the pilots in the DC-4 were able to report their encounters. The Martin 404 required the use of a device connected to the BMEP, which is Brake Mean Effective Power Gauge, which would cause an engine failing or falling below a preset power output setting to auto feather. One of George's engines auto feathered and power on the other dropped to 25%. Later, when describing his ordeal, George Boast said that by this time he was so deep in the well, he had his hand on the landing flap handle and was preparing to land in Flushing Bay. At the low power output, carburetor heat was not available. As a last resort, he called upon his ingenuity and used an old airmail pilot trick. He turned the ignition off and back on for the engine that was still running, causing it to backfire and blow the ice out of the carburetor. Then carburetor heat could be applied. The co-pilot reported that the other engine had unfeathered. George said, well, see if you can unfeather it, auto-feathered. George told us later that it unfeathered at takeoff power, but it sure sounded good. But then he did not know whether they would fly under Whitestone Bridge or over it. He and his co-pilot succeeded in climbing out of the icing conditions, but it was an experience they would never forget. Ryan, look! There's a new kind of plane! That's Eastern's new Boeing 727J! Look how high the tail is! 34 feet! Look where they put the jets! In the tail assembly! That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth riding home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce. Prepare it as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet. Quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. Any of us that worked for Eastern, whether it was in the later days or the early days, all knew about Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Uh, he was a character, you might say. And this story, we're going to find out a little bit about that character. The story is called My Incident at MSY. That's New Orleans for anybody that might not know that code. When I read J Leo James Boyce's Incident at MSY, I thought that I was Captain X. But upon checking my logbook, I found that my incident at MSY occurred September 8, 1957, over a year later. It was much worse. 
Now I can understand why Captain Eddie was so mad. At that time, I thought it was because the airplane was so dirty. Remember, his theory that flying through rain showers was the cheapest way to wash airplanes. It was bad enough to see the airplane looking like a broken bird, but worst of all, it was filthy. It was the same Super G Constellation, number 232, that Captain X got stuck there on December the 2nd, 1956. This time, Captain Eddie was waiting for the airplane to fly the President of Mexico somewhere to consummate their deal. We had flown through a hurricane which had soaked New Orleans. When we pulled into the gate and un unloaded the passengers, Ray Browd, the station manager, came into the cockpit and told me that Captain Rickenbacker was going to use the airplane to fly the President of Mexico and for appearance sake, he would like the airplane over at the new terminal, which hadn't opened yet. He wondered if I'd taxi it over. He said he knew we didn't get paid for taxiing airplanes, but was pleased when I told him I'd be happy to. On the way over, we had to taxi north on a very narrow taxiway. I could visualize the outbound tires hanging over the edges of the blacktop, and about halfway through that right turn, my heart sank when the right main wheel dropped into the mud. We were in so deep, I was afraid the props would hit, so I shut everything down. I don't think there's anything bigger than an airplane's captain's ego. Talk about the sloughs of despond. I was immersed in misery and despair. We got out. Pretty soon, Captain Eddie came over to where we stood by the airplane. Besides his battered fedora, he had some kind of stick or cane in his hand. I, express, I expected him to beat me with it. I was relieved when he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Son, you must be blind. Then he stalked away. First they got an airbag from the Navy. They ran that for four hours. It didn't even inflate, let alone raise the wing. Meantime, I stood in the same spot where Captain Eddie had left me, my faithful crew nearby. I can remember a prissy-looking character that I vaguely recognized as one of our captains prancing around the perimeter. If that was Captain X, I forgive him. Captain Eddie and Ray got their heads together, and pretty soon this bulldozer showed up. It might have been a DC-6, but I think it was at least a D-66. I've never seen a bigger one. It was as big as a house, and they had a cable to match. When I saw them hitching the cable to the landing gear, I thought they had just got so disgusted they were going to destroy the airplane. That lovely G with its gold trim interior and its uh, fire extinguishers. I cr cringed and winced when Captain Eddie gave the go-ahead signal. The airplane started moving and 75 feet of New Orleans muck was shoved ahead of the tires. Out she came and once again she sat on the taxiway. They took her to the hangar, hosed her down, and found everything okay. I was so relieved, the rest was easy. Once a month, for a year, I got a personal letter from Captain Rickenbacker. My first reply established the fact that I did get the airplane stuck and that I alone was responsible. The next one had to do with that plus taxiway markings, etc. Meantime, there was nobody between Captain Eddie and me. Once, I saw Doug Sager in Miami, who was then chief pilot in New York. He said, we're going to have to do something about that New Orleans incident. I said, yeah, they ought to dump 20 bags of cement into that hole. He said, no, that's not what I mean. I heard Johnny Warner, my chief pilot in Boston, had been told to discipline me, and he said he'd quit first. 
My monthly letters came from Cap. My monthly letters from Captain Eddie kept coming. Finally, late the next summer, he wrote complimenting me on my forthrightness, sense of responsibility, etc. So, Captain X, whoever you are, we are both lucky in one way. We knew Captain Eddie better than most. We can be grateful for that. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. Captain Jim Holder from Atlanta continues to deliver wonderful stories, and he's sent three of them in, and it's about three cats and a dog. The first story we're going to read is uh, the dog story, and then we'll go into the cat story. But Jim, thanks again for the many fine stories that you have supplied, Memories of a Great Airline. Jim writes... Early one morning, many years ago, I was a captain on an early morning 727 flight from Atlanta to Raleigh to Washington. Upon arrival at Raleigh-Durham, we were parked heading south, northwest, uh, sort of northwest, I guess he's saying here, at the end of the finger. The passengers departing and those getting on simply walked to or from a door at the end of the finger to the steps to the airplane. Since it was to be a fairly quick stop, I decided to simply remain in my seat. After a few minutes, I heard a lot of shouting and commotion down the nose of the airplane. Almost immediately, I saw a large dog, which seems to be uh, seemed to be a golden retriever, running past the nose of the airplane, headed towards the runway, sort of southeast bound. It was being chased by many of the ramp workers and other eastern folks. They were very soon joined by employees of the other airlines as well, many of whom were driving trucks, cars, and other vehicles. I had a perfect view of the dog and chasers as they crossed the active runway and headed for the woods about 500 yards to the southeast. But due to the distance, all I could see were the vehicles going back and forth in front of the heavy woods. It was clear that many airport workers were searching deeper in the woods, though. The agent came to the cockpit and explained that, per the normal procedure, the ramp workers deplaned the dog in its cage, which was just inside the front cargo door, and set it aside. One worker noticed that its water bowl was empty, so he opened the door to get it out to be refilled. However, the dog simply jumped out the open door and headed for the woods. The tower operator had his binoculars on and constantly gave me updates via radio on what was happening over in the woods. He was free to do this as there were no departures or arrivals for the entire time. I kept informing the passengers on the airplane, some going to Washington, on important business, I expect, what was happening. Basically, nothing, as no one seemed to have the dog in sight. 
The flight attendant told me that no one seemed to be concerned about departing late. They wanted to find the dog just like we did. But it seemed the dog's owner was not on the airplane. At about 25 minutes past the scheduled departure, we, the crew, started wondering what we should give up and that we should give up and just depart. That dog could be a mile away by now. Still, though, no passengers were pressing us to depart. But the tower operator suddenly said he thought he saw the dog with some guys walking towards a station wagon at the edge of the woods. He then said the car was heading our way, and moments later it crossed the runway, and we could see the dog standing on the back seat, just panning and smiling. They had a bowl of water in the center, and and the mutt drained it. So, just a few minutes later, we were airborne to big cheers from the passengers, and I believe we set some kind of record from Raleigh to Washington as we arrived only 10 minutes or so late. Again, no passengers complained. Now, that's the dog story. And now, the cat story. I should say, three cats and a dog. We just delivered the dog story. Jim, here we go again with your accounting of three cats. Many years ago, when I was a young flight engineer on the Electra based in Chicago, I found myself one night, along with a young flight attendant, crawling all under and around the seats, searching for a Siamese cat who did not want to be found. At the time, small dogs and cats could be carried in a small carrier, but they absolutely could not be taken out of the carrier. But a young girl, traveling with her folks, took her out uh, to eat, uh, took her cat out, I should say, uh, of the carrier, and almost immediately it took off running all over the plane, scratching and biting more than a few passengers. The captain, having been advised of this pending disaster, told me to go get that cat and put it back in the carrier a task which required the help of many freshly bit and scratched passengers who hollered, It's back here! Followed by other passengers, many rose away, No, it's over here! Anyhow, after about 15 minutes of crawling over assorted trash, including a lot of dried English peas, we finally trapped the very angry cat, which grabbed my right wrist and sunk all four claws into my arm. We were able to dislodge the cat and got it back in its carrier. But I think the senior flight attendant used every bit of the meds and bandages in the first aid kit trying to patch me up. That's the first cat story. Here's the second. Several years later, I was still an Electra flight engineer, but now based in New York City, or NYC. We three pilots were eating a late lunch at the company cafeteria at Kennedy when the station manager came to tell us that a first-class passenger, Mrs. Reynolds of the Reynolds Tobacco Company fame, was flying to Raleigh with us in about an hour. She had just learned that the current rule with small cats and dogs was that they had to be placed in their carrier in the baggage compartment. She was extremely upset and said that her cat, 
a well-behaved Persian, was not going to ride in the baggage compartment, and that was that. Well, no problem at all, said my captain. This well-behaved Persian kitty, not a mean Siamese at that, would just sit in Jim's lap, my lap. He then told me to go out to the gate and tell the lady that her kitty would ride in my lap. I did so and immediately became her best friend. She asked me to sit down and make friends with with her kitty. About ten minutes before departure, the agent brought her kitty to the cockpit and she settled in nicely in my lap, purring up a storm. As everyone knows, an electroflight engineer does very little after takeoff, so I showed her how to flight to fight boredom by using the four toggle switches to maintain the proper oil temperature in each engine within proper limits limits. In minutes that little kitty was keeping the temperatures better than I could. About halfway to Raleigh Durham, Miss Reynolds made a trip to the cockpit to check on things. It was clear that she was really appreciative, appreciated having her kitty ride in my lap and thanked the captain profusely. She did the same after landing when she came to get her kitty. As I was flying with the same captain all month, he came to the cockpit later on with a gold-bound thick paper letter from the Eastern Airlines president. I forgot who it was back then. Informing him that he had gotten a wonderful letter from Mrs. Reynolds heaping praises on him, the captain, for the wonderful treatment she and her kitty had received. At least he let me read it, the letter. The final cat story is the one following, and it reads, Much later, I was an Atlanta Boeing 727 captain by now, I got a call one late one night from a friend who also was a Czech airman in Atlanta. Seems he had relatives come from New Orleans bringing their cat. However, it had gotten lost and they had to go home without it, which had the entire family upset. Good news, though, the next day is somehow the cat had been found. But how to get it to New Orleans was a big question. There was a big question. He had checked the schedules and found that I was flying a nonstop to New Orleans the next morning, and he wondered if I might be willing to take the cat with me. Of course, I said. Just have the kitty appear in the cockpit in a carrier with a blanket over it, this before I boarded. It did, and I carried it into the gate in New Orleans to some very happy folks. End of stories. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. This story is called A Touch of Glamour from the Best of Repartee. Helen Roberts Talton brought a touch of glamour to aviation in the early days, along with other women pioneers such as Amelia Earhart, who made her own solo flight in 1932. Early pilots 
The cockpit crew were thought to be adventuresome in the new mode of transportation, but it was the nurses who were the early stewardesses and those daring women pilots who brought the glamour. Mother learned to drive and fly about the same time, right after graduating from high school, but I think her interest in flying started even before that. I imagine Mother saw Amelia Earhart's solo flight as something she would like to do. From what my grandmother, uncle, and aunt told me, Mom was always a step ahead. She tried new things. She was probably what they call today unconventional, but she was always a class act. After graduating from commercial high, Mom was a secretary at the state capitol, first for the superintendent of schools, and then to Charles N. Elliott, the director of wildlife in the Department of Natural Resources. Once she had saved $100, which was big bucks back then, she took 10 hours of dual time in a J3 Cub and an Aeronica C3 from an instructor, Peter Underwood, with the Southern Company before it was Southern Airways. Mom soloed in late 1939 or early 1940 from the old Candler Field to Stone Mountain and back. Why did Mother take up flying? because at that time it was like being an astronaut. It was the new frontier. It looked exciting and challenging. Mother has always been adventuresome, and this was one of her most visible projects. While Mother was learning to fly, she met other women with the same adventurous spirit, and they formed the Southern Aviatrix Association. She was their first president. This group, Another solo attracted publicity. Glamorous women in the new frontier were an editor's dream. This exposure brought these women into the forefront, and Mother was discovered and hired by Delta Airlines, C.E. Woolman President and Lee Parker. Her job was to familiarize herself with all facets of the airline industry, Delta in particular, and to tell the women it was okay to fly as passengers. It would be 50 years before women headed into the cockpit. Mother learned the workings of the company from reservations and some familiarization flights to a little time in engine overhaul, stewardess school, and the control tower. Mother's career at Delta was short-lived. There are lots of stories about how Mother met Father, or how Father met Mother, but Miss Bertie Perkins, the first stewardess to fly with Delta, and later to become Miss Dick Bomar, probably knows for sure. Father, Captain James P. Talton, was a young, handsome pilot with Eastern Airlines. As the story goes, he saw Mother at the airport and was determined to meet her. He and Dick Bomar were roommates. The plot thickens. Father used Bertie's name to get a date with Mother, but on date day, Bertie was called to fly, or so the story goes leaving Mother to venture out alone with this young gentleman caller in his convertible. They started dating, and the rest is history. Mother may have quickly and quietly left the employment of the aviation industry just before her wedding day on April 25, 1942, but she nurtured her love of flying by staying interested in and supporting her husband's love of flying and Eastern Airlines. She stayed home and kept the home fires burning, 
Being the constant in her two daughters' lives, his father was an in-and-out figure, as the crew schedule dictated. Mother, as most young pilots' wives, did the work of both parents. All the birthday and holiday celebrations, the school and PTA commitments, she was president there too, and the trips to the doctors and hospitals with the broken this or that. However, when father was scheduled in, she would spruce up, do her best to get us girls clean, and be waiting with a hot, unless his flight was late, home-cooked meal. She kept the glamour alive, even if just for us. In 1959, the Eastern Airlines Pilot Wives Club was formed, and Mother was again the first president. Early pictures show this group of ladies continued the glamour, stylish hats and classic dress, as they worked at various aviation-related and community-involved projects. Mother just turned 75. It's no secret. Hundreds of well-wishers participated in a surprise birthday greeting in our local newspaper, the Dawson County Advisor. She's still glamorous, now with the glamour that comes from the peace and contentment of a good life. She's just as much at home in the theater on opening night as she is on a tractor plowing the South 40. Now, Helen Roberts Talton adds a touch of glamour to Dawson County, assisting the clerk and judges when court is in session, working for the good of the community through the Sheriff's Association to raise money for a drug detection dog, serving on the music committee at the First Baptist Church of Dawsonville, and working with the Rotarians, the Women's Club, and the Chamber of Commerce. She recently received the Chamber's Citizen of the Year Award. What an exciting life. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Well, it's been another great hour sharing the stories of Eastern Airlines as told by its people. Linda and Harry Lindquist and I have had the pleasure of being the radio voice during tonight's broadcast and hope you will join us again next week for another hour of Eastern history. Remember, we want you to be part of the Eastern story. All you need to do is email us a memory of or experience you remember about Eastern, and we'll include it as part of these broadcasts. You even might want to tell the story in your own voice, and we'll put it on the air. It's really easy to do. Most computers have a voice recorder, and record using the MP3 or WAV format. All you need to do is turn it on, start talking, telling your story. It will save in the MP3 or WAV format that can be emailed to us. You can send it to eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. We'll do the rest. 
We hope you will tell your Eastern friends about these Monday evening broadcasts at 8 p.m. And on behalf of Linda, Harry, and me, Neil Holland, we say good night, and we hope you have a great week. Good night, Eastern family.